0: Skate Pod, 358 August 16, 2012 Like a Hawk in its Gyre by Philip Brewer Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Mer Lafferty. We live in amazing times right now. We have so many reasons to cheer and weep they're hard to keep track of. So I will run down a couple. Congrats to NASA for the successful Curiosity mission to Mars. Congrats to Mohawk Dudes for his sudden internet fame and many marriage proposals. We also mourn the passing of Harry Harrison, science fiction grandmaster and author of The Stainless Steel Rat and the mind behind the movie Soylent Green. This week we also lost Joe Kubert, dc comic book artist science fiction has been an unspoken fuel for actual science from much of the last hundred years our authors write the stories and little boys and girls who have a passion for science sit back and dream i find that so beautiful some of the biggest science fiction geeks i know are astronomers and astrophysicists i'm just very glad that science is continuing to do amazing things and i'm glad that science fiction is still there to offer fuel or cautionary tales or encouragement to dream big we'll miss you harry harrison but thank you for everything you've given science fiction. This week's story is Like a Hawk in Its Gyre by Philip Brewer. Philip Brewer's stories often involve genetic engineering and money. Perhaps not surprising as his parents are biologists and he has a degree in economics. Even before his former employer did him great kindness of closing the site where he'd been working, giving him the opportunity to become a full-time writer, his stories often involved hard economic times. His work has appeared in Asimov's Futurismic and Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. He speaks Esperanto and uses it for international communication. He blogs at philipbrewer.net. This story was first printed in Redstone Science Fiction, February 2011. Our narrator is Tim Crist, otherwise known as the comedy musician Shoebox of Worm Quartet. You can hear his wonderful weirdness at wormquartet.com, or you can read his webcomic at partiallyclips.com. So put a playing card between your spokes. It's story time
1: like a hawk in its gyre by Philip Brewer. The bicycle noticed someone was following before Kurt did. Washing for a tail was a habit he'd finally broken himself of, but not before the bicycle's impressionable brain had picked it up. Its low warning hum sent a thrill of adrenaline through him, giving power to the part of his brain that wanted him to sprint away. Kurt glanced back down the single track. The trees were already beginning to turn fall colors around the edges of the forest. But here along the narrow trail, the foliage was green and thick. Resisting the urge to pick up the pace, he continued on, looking back when he could take his eyes off the trail, and after a few moments caught sight of what the bicycle had seen. It's just another cyclist, Kurt said, reaching down to pat the bicycle's yellow and black hornet-striped frame. The bicycle didn't understand. Its brain was small and lacked the regions for understanding speech. But Kurt's tone of voice calmed it, and the warning hum grew softer and less anxious. The end of the trail, a scenic overlook above the Vermilion River, was not far ahead, but the overtaking bicyclist was approaching even faster. The polite thing to do would have been to find a place to pull off the trail and let the cyclist pass. But there were no surveillance devices in the forest, and Kurt couldn't face meeting someone out of the sight of some sort of watching eyes. At just the thought of it, his adrenaline surged again. Letting his brain chemistry have its way with him, Kurt leaned low over his handlebars and pedaled hard. With its good forward eyes, the bicycle watched the trail, sending little twitches into the steering to help Kurt take the best line. On the road, it didn't make much difference, but on a technical trail, the bicycle's assist could add several percent to his speed. Giving in to the urge to sprint away took some of the pressure off, enough that Kurt had a chance to think. The urge to find surveillance cameras, the need to do nothing that wasn't observed, was one that he'd had some time to get used to, even to an extent come to terms with. What his brain needed was watching eyes. It wanted surveillance cameras, but those weren't the only kinds of eyes. His own two didn't count, but there were others. His bicycle had eight, and the forest was full of eyes. He could hear a woodpecker hammering not far off, the buzzing of deer flies around his head, and rustlings in the litter that might be frogs or small mammals. They all had eyes. Focusing on that, Kurt was able to ease his speed down and break to a stop as he reached the end of the trail, where a wide, clear area looked out over the river. Breathing hard, he looked back down the trail. He started to reach for his water bottle, but the trembling in his hand made him wait. The approaching rider was dressed like a cyclist. Lycra shorts, padded gloves, helmet, wrap-around amber shades. The bike had a rack over the rear wheel, and a large bag, as big as the bag that Kurt had on his own bike. Big enough for a picnic lunch and a six-pack of beer. The man angled toward the other side of the viewing area and jumped off his bike a good distance away. Kurt began to relax. The lack of surveillance was fine if they didn't interact. The clearing, nearly flat until it dipped sharply down to the river, began to feel a little more comfortable. His breathing slowed and he calmed down enough to smell the moist dirt. He pulled out his water bottle. Hello, Kurt, said the man. Kurt's hand tightened, forcing a narrow spray of water out of the top of the bottle. My name's Starkweather. It's been difficult to arrange a private conversation with you. Not private, Kurt thought, twisting his head left and right. The forest is full of eyes and ears. He knew he was just fooling his brain, and not fooling it very well, but the thought took the edge off what would otherwise have been a panic attack. The man watched him, then continued. You post all your email to the web, your phone provides your GPS coordinates to the net in real time, and your shop has cameras that put an unencrypted feed on the net. Kurt's knees trembled in yearning for his shop cameras. Starkweather moved closer to Kurt. The bicycle's warning hum grew louder. This must be one of your bicycles, Starkweather said. He took off his shades and peered at it, then pointed toward a round bulge at the front of the top tube. The brain is here? The hum shifted, changing from a warning tone to a more threatening snarl, and Starkweather pulled back his finger. I'm terribly interested in your bicycles. On your shop video feed, you can plainly see them moving on their own. They can't carry you around, can they? The bicycles he made were a topic Kirk could discuss, even in a private conversation. No, to do that, they'd have to be as big as a horse. They can just shift back and forth a little by shifting fluids in their tires. The tires are living tissue? Kurt nodded. He considered explaining that the handlebar grips were living tissue as well and didn't wear out or need replacing. But somehow the forest clearing didn't seem like the right place for his sales pitch. Fascinating, but don't you feel restricted having so little living tissue to work with? Wouldn't it be better to make something that was a whole animal? Something like a bird, perhaps? The safe talk of bicycles had lulled Kurt into relaxing. At the mention of birds, his throat closed, and he couldn't speak. Starkweather leaned forward. The bicycles are a clever toy, but I want to talk about birds. Remembering the comforting image of eyes in the forest, Kurt gestured toward the trees and managed to say in a strangled voice, the forest is full of birds. Ah, very droll. No, I want to talk about hawks, such as you made for the government during the unpleasantness a few years back. Kirk could say nothing to that. This was so far beyond anything he could have a private conversation about, he couldn't even retrace the steps of the conversation as it went from bicycles to hawks. The only response to a conversation like this was to call a particular number and report it. Ignoring Starkweather, he dug in his bag for his phone, like a starving man going through a restaurant's garbage. As Kurt pulled out his phone, Starkweather spoke in a gentle voice, calling his name. The words washed over him, his entire attention focused on holding down the two button, speed dialing the number he needed to call. The phone displayed, call failed. He pressed the button to try again, and then again. Finally, Starkweather's words got through. Kurt, it won't work. I'm jamming the cell phone frequencies. I have been, since before you even knew I was behind you on the trail. Kurt leaned on his bicycle. Its warning hum changed tone, taking on a worried sound. Kurt made an effort to get himself under control. His mind was going in tight circles around and around the urge to make that call. Having gone through the motions, he found the circle widening just a bit. It would come back to this point. The need to make the call would return. But for the moment, he could think about other things. I know it's hard for you to talk about your government work. I can help, though. For one thing, I already know all about it. I've read all your papers, the secret ones, I mean, that document the genetic and surgical changes you made to hawk brains. I particularly liked your genetic basis for replicating human structures in the avian fusiform gyrus. That was the work that let your hawks recognize people's faces from photographs. Kurt shook his head. I know, Starkweather said. If I've got the papers, why do I need you? Well, it's very difficult to do that sort of work these days. Impossible, really. And yet I have a certain task that would be much easier with one of your hawks. So it occurred to me that you probably had some hawks left at the end of the war. In fact, the records show that there were eight. Kurt couldn't answer. He could barely breathe. I can help you with that, Starkweather said in a gentle voice. He gestured in the direction of the river. The move was so casual, Kurt glanced that way without thinking. As he did so, Starkweather reached out quick like a bird of prey and slapped Kurt on the hand. Kurt looked down and saw that a patch had been applied to the back of his hand. He shrieked and clawed at the edges. Relax, I won't come off without some sort of solvent. Acetone will do the trick. It's not bad, just some neurotransmitters to damp down what they did to you. The need to get the patch off was like the need to breathe. Nothing else mattered, and he would have fallen if the bicycle hadn't shifted to help him keep his balance. Do you even know what they did to you? Having designed the procedure himself, Kurt understood better than anyone what they'd done to him. A little minimally invasive brain surgery. Some stem cells and growth hormones injected in just the right places so that certain areas of the brain became a little larger a little more complex, a little better connected. Some old-fashioned conditioning. The whole procedure aimed at making it impossible for him to give away any of his old secrets, while making it intolerable for him to have any new ones. The chemicals in that patch go a long way to making you normal again. It was like having a fog over his brain, but after a few seconds, Kurt found it was a selective fog. Those urges he had out of necessity come to terms with fell away. It wasn't quite so important that he do nothing in private, He still wanted to make that phone call, but now he realized it would be okay to wait a few hours. He closed his phone and slid it back into his bag. There, Starkweather said. Feel more like your old self? Starkweather paused, but when Kurt had no response, went on. It won't last, of course. I can let you have a few more of these patches, but that's not a long-term solution either. There's only one thing that will free you from what they did to you. You have to tell me your secrets. I know most of them. I know everything that was in your papers, logs, records, and reports. None of that information is secret anymore, so you don't have to keep it secret. But there are still a few things that are secret, and those secrets will still have power over you until you tell me. What happened to those hawks? Kurt stared at him, the fog in his brain making it hard to think. It was true that only secrets preyed on his mind. The things he did now that were fed to the Internet in real time were not a burden. Already, knowing that his papers had been read, he could feel the weight of keeping those secrets lifting. It wasn't as simple as that, though. What about this meeting? Kurt said, an instant before it occurred to him that he might be asking a dangerous question. I'll have to tell them about it, or it will be a secret, too. Of course, Starkweather said smoothly. You don't have to keep any of this secret. Starkweather isn't my real name, and I'll want them to know that I've got a hawk. Really, that's the whole point. Kurt knew that keeping his old secrets secret was as important as making sure he didn't have any new secrets, but the drugs in the patch confused the two. The allure of freeing himself from his old secrets was very, very strong. There were never any extra weaponized hawks. We only made one when they were going to use it immediately. Anything else would have been far too dangerous. Very careful phrasing, Kurt. But don't you think the hawks were weaponized even before they were fitted with explosives? Didn't the genetic changes amount to weaponizing? There were eight hawks left. I've seen the records. They were not destroyed. Kirk clamped his mouth shut. Starkweather looked around as if admiring the scenery. This used to be a prime nesting area for hawks, here by the river. Then, what with DDT and habitat destruction, hawks got pretty scarce. After the war, birders noticed there were hawks nesting on the Vermilion River again. That could just be coincidence, but combined with the fact that you ride down here nearly every week, I started thinking maybe there was a connection." You think I set them free? They couldn't have survived. They were lab animals. They were supposed to live off the land for as long as it took to complete their mission. If they could survive for weeks, they could survive for three years. They're out there. I want one. Kurt looked up at the sky, nodding to himself. Birdwatchers saw hawks along the Vermilion River, often from this very spot. They posted reports about it to their blogs. But there were no hawks over the river today. There never were when he came to look. Why do you think I come out here? To visit them? They weren't pets. They were weapons of war. Weapons of terror, really. Starkweather gestured at the bicycle. You forget that everything you do is broadcast on the net. I've seen you with your bicycle. I've seen you in your shop with the other bicycles. You couldn't just kill your hawks. And you couldn't just set them free and then not check up to make sure they were doing okay. Kurt petted the yellow and black striped frame absently. The bicycle's hum had quieted as Kurt had relaxed under the influence of the patch. If I couldn't do that, then surely I couldn't give one to you. They didn't survive their missions. That's the nature of bombs, Starkweather said. The generals were fools. Bombs were all they understood. What we wanted to do was use poison. Kirk clamped his mouth shut again, holding back his rant on how easy it would have been to grow some venom glands on the hawk's talons. There were plenty of poisons deadly enough that one slash would be as certain a kill as a bomb. But the generals wouldn't hear of it. Military types are stupid about a lot of things, Kurt said, unable to keep his mouth shut any longer. But they're rather clever when it comes to keeping weapons safe until you're ready to use them. Poison talons would have been a danger to everyone in the lab. Starkweather glanced up at the sky with an uneasy expression on his face. Kurt smiled. Based on the effect it was having on him, he was beginning to understand how the patch worked. It was hard to keep his mouth shut, but he found he could pick and choose which secrets to reveal. The explosive payload was inserted in the females. Females were larger and can carry more. It was inserted in place of their reproductive organs. We used the same birds for breeding stock, so a bird was lost for that once it was armed. Will they come when you call them? Kurt's smile vanished. No birds to call. He tilted his head back as if to look for birds, but really to keep tears from falling from his eyes. Let's find out, Starkweather said. Call them. He reached into his bag and pulled out a compact bundle that shook out into a mesh cage big enough for a hawk. He attached it to the rack on the back of his bicycle. Kurt shook his head. There aren't any. All gone. Starkweather reached into the bag again and this time pulled out a small pistol. As the gun came clear, the bicycle's quiet hum took on an urgent warble. How interesting. Your bicycle recognizes a gun. That's a very clever creature. Does it have a name? Kurt patted the frame again and hummed a calming hum. No, I just call it my bicycle. Too bad, Starkweather said. I'd like to call it by name when I threaten it. Kurt found that he was no longer in danger of crying. He turned his gaze from the sky and fixed it on Starkweather. You'd threaten a bicycle? Not just the bicycle, I'd kill you too. But somehow I get the idea that killing the bicycle would be a bigger threat. He raised the gun. I guess it's really the same thing though, isn't it? The bicycle isn't like the birds. It can't take care of itself. If I kill you, your bicycle will die here, alone in the forest. Probably all the bicycles in your shop as well, unless someone takes over caring for them. What an awful idea! Starkweather leveled the gun, aiming at the bicycle's small brain. Call a hawk. Kurt pushed hard in the bicycle seat, setting the bike rolling across the ground, inkling toward the river. Starkweather tracked it for a moment, then turned the gun back towards Kurt. That won't save it, not if you're dead... "'Call a hawk, now, or I'll kill you.' "'All right.' Kurt whistled, then made his hand into a fist, and held it above his head. He kept his eyes on the sky so he didn't see the bicycle begin making a wide turn behind Starkweather's back. He whistled again, a lower, repeated sound. "'Where are the hawks?' "'If they're alive,' Kurt said, "'they'll be watching us. They're trained to stay hidden when there are strangers about, especially strangers with guns.' If you can't get them to overcome that training in about 15 seconds, you're dead. Kurt whistled again, his fists still in the air, his eyes still in the sky. You know, he began in a more conversational tone, nothing about the bicycles is a secret. I can't keep anything secret. But some things aren't as clearly documented as others, especially things that didn't need any further research. Unlike the hawk's brains, which were really just barely changed, the bicycle's brains were designed from the ground up. The most obvious part is loosely based on a llama's brain. That's the part that recognizes people in guns. The part that hums to warn or threaten. But the central core of the brain is based on a spider's brain. That's the part that knows how to use eight eyes. The part that feels vibrations, treating the frame as if it were its web. Five seconds, Starkweather said. Spiders, Kurt said. Don't warn or threaten. The bicycle, having just completed its wide turn, rolled silently up behind Starkweather, brushing past his left arm. Starkweather began to turn, but far too late. Kurt knew what he was feeling, sudden blinding pain like a wasp sting, pain that didn't start and grow worse, but was so abrupt and severe it couldn't fail to grab someone's full attention. Starkweather swung his right hand around to reach the site of the agony. Before he could change his mind and swing the gun back towards Kurt, he couldn't move. He couldn't do anything but collapse in a heap. Good bicycle, Kurt said. Come to me. The bicycle didn't understand words, but it knew what Kurt meant. It began another wide, circling turn from the angle of its attack on Starkweather. Kurt looked down at Starkweather, the man's breathing becoming steadily more ragged. We did a lot of research on toxins when we were trying to convince the military to go that direction. The drugs from the patch made it hard to shut up, and Kurt no longer saw any reason to try. The bicycle produces wasp venom for the instant pain that distracts you. It can use just that if it's simply trying to deter a thief. But it has another... For the military, we came up with some very deadly shellfish, snake, and spider toxins, but I had trouble making those play nicely with the wasp venom. I ended up going with scorpion genes, enough to grow a stinger from the living tissue of the handlebar grip and a tidy poison gland full of very deadly nerve poisons. In large doses, and this is a much larger dose than you'd likely get from a scorpion, they paralyze almost instantly, with death following in just a few minutes. The urge to make that phone call to report on everything that had happened was growing again. Kurt thought about searching Starkweather and his bicycle for the patches, and decided against it. His new, public life was very comfortable. After all, he'd volunteered for it, and designed the procedures that made it work. It was the old secrets that were hard, and he'd finally given those away. Even knowing that he'd told his secrets to a dead man, they seemed to weigh less on his mind. Straddling his bicycle, Kurt looked again at the sky. It's true that I released the birds, he said. Hoping that Starkweather wasn't quite dead so we could give away one more secret. But I can't call them. I don't even see them. I tell myself it's because they're smart enough to keep away from me, but I don't really know. I just come here in case they need me. They don't, though. Maybe they're all dead. But if they're not dead, then I guess I didn't break them too badly. Kurt looked down. I wish I knew. <laughs>
0: that was our story. So I'm going to get a little personal here, and I want to apologize to folks. I've been suffering from a lot of self-doubt lately, which is why my end caps to recent episodes have been shorter and of less content. I just don't have it in me to write more, which is why I attempted to write more this time, because I'm more aware of it. If you keep up with me beyond Escape Pod, you'll know that I've podcasted and blogged about this problem at IShouldBeWriting.com, so if you're curious, you can go there and read the whole bit. I'm not asking for help or encouragement. I know the problems I'm having are self-induced and created, and I'm working through them. So I will endeavor to get you more content and better content. And more better content. I hesitated talking about this, but I remember how honest Steve always was with his end caps, especially if there was something holding him back from giving the best he could. And so I thought it might be time to delve into that territory myself. But thanks for listening, and I appreciate your patience. So this will be my last hosting gig before Worldcon. Not my last hosting gig, my last hosting gig before Worldcon, because because at the end of every month, Norm Sherman takes over hosting duties. But I'd like to say that there has been enough interest in a meetup. So we'll have one. But considering that I don't know where we're going to be, I'm not sure where to have it. So watch my Twitter page at MightyMur or you can watch the blog at escapepod.org, and I'll announce where and when it will be. It will probably be Saturday afternoon sometime. That's one of my free days. I hope I'll see you at Worldcon. So let's hear from our assistant editor, Nathan Ling, with your feedback.
2: Heads up, sci-fi fans. Assistant editor Nathan coming at you with the least convincing teenage impersonation ever. Well, I've got the feedback for episodes 351 and 352. We're doubling up because my laziness has caused us to fall behind a couple of eps, and uh, these both have pretty straightforward responses. First up, episode 351. 113 Feet by Josh Roseman, a.k.a. the forum's own listener, the story of a girl's search for her father that ends up in a pretty odd place. Josh has been around for a while and generally earned his chops, but even if he'd been an unknown to our forum audience, I think he'd have gotten praise for this one. Reaction was very positive in general. Unblinking hit most of the major points for the thread, writing, "'The story didn't end where I expected, "'which is a definite plus.' I thought she'd be reunited with Daddy and have a heartfelt and happy reunion, or barring that that she'd fail to find him. I didn't expect her to find him, only to find out that he's not interested in a reunion and has more important things to deal with, even though she's pretty much devoted her life to finding him again. That really hit me, probably partly because I didn't expect it at all, and I really felt for her. I cheered when she destroyed the letter unopened. Nothing he can say at that point is worth her time and attention. He made his choice. I hope she can learn to forgive him, though, for her own sake, so she doesn't carry that anger inside her. Most people cited the ending as a strong point, which I found interesting, as Josh commented in the thread that he hadn't even written the ending in the first drafts of the story, just left it unspecified whether she found him or not. It's interesting to get those glimpses into the writing process, I think. Next up is episode 352, Food for Thought, by Laura Lee McArdle. This was the tale of a hyper-intelligent cow and the mysterious conspiracy she finds herself in the midst of. It was light and fun and funny, and people pretty much approved wholeheartedly. Cutter McKay, who has been struggling with the heartbreak of Logaria, said, Well, I'll start this one off by saying it was just fun. Stupid, but fun. I enjoyed the lightness of it, the the many bovine references, like inferring that boredom will cause the cows to go mad, i.e. mad cow disease. It's funny. And the ending line actually made me laugh out loud. I liked it. Look, I kept my comment short. Later in the thread, listener Josh again. Man, that guy gets around. Made a comic uh, that you really you, you you just have to experience it firsthand. Okay, that's all I can say about it. I leave you with these deep thoughts on cows, stories, hyper intelligent cow stories from our very own gamer cow. Cow story, cow story, cow story, cow story, cow story. That's it for this week. Travel forward in time eh, about a week, give or take, to take a bite out of the comments for episode 353, Talking with the Enemy.
0: Now we remind you that Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or charge for it. All other rights are reserved by our authors. We're a pro-paying market, and some people don't know what that means. Some people think I'm full of myself saying we're pros. But no, pro-paying market is an official term set up by the Science Fiction Writers of America who say that if you buy stories at five cents a word or above, you can be qualified as a pro-paying market, which means if you sell us a story and you haven't sold it anywhere else, then you will be one step closer to getting your membership into CIFWA. That's what pro-paying market means. We want to be a good place for new science fiction writers and established science fiction writers to go to put their stories and so we're paying more but to do that we need your donations we need you to donate at escapepod.org and if you want to help out our sister podcasts you're doing it anyway but you can go check them out at pseudopod.org and podcastle.org any money you donate will go to serve all three shows our music is by permission of Daikaiju you can hear more from them at daikaiju.org So that was our show for this week. Our quote comes from John McCarthy. Our ultimate objective is to make programs that learn from their experience as effectively as humans do. We shall say that a program has common sense if it automatically deduces for itself a sufficient wide class of immediate consequences of anything it is told and what it already knows. So thanks for listening, have fun, and be mighty. We'll see you next week.